It's interesting, I noted that all my fellow journalists were fond of this term serial killer when discussing her. But in the likes of John Wicks and Deathwish, you always hear the word vigilante. Um, I think that's true. I think it's very easy to sort of couch the character as just mad. I mean, she is quite mad. Um, but as you watch the film, you realise there is a reason behind what she's doing, rightly or wrongly. Um, there is there is a sort of reasoning to her madness. Um and yeah, I would I would say that it's sort of similar structurally to things like John Wicks and Taken and all the traditional, um, you know, vengeance sort of thing. Even Mad Max and Gladiator, a kind of vengeance flicks, I would say. And there's a little bit of that in this, yeah. But because it's in a more kind of a downbeat kind of a world. Yeah, it's... a more realistic kind of. Uh, grimy sort of UK uh, lens upon the whole thing. Um, yeah, it possibly feels a bit more um, familiar or close to home to, when they're watching it, I guess. I thought also quite beautiful at times. You create a lovely, eerie uh, lighting as we went through the, the landscapes towards the end. Mm. Um, well, that's thanks to my amazing DOP. I mean, um, he's very good at sort of you know, we shot it over a very short time, so I was like, demanding quite a lot of him. Um, I think it was very much a sort of choice of going, well, there'll be some scenes that are very handheld and rough around the edges, and then if we're lucky, we'll get some beauty into it as well, and we'll try to um, indulge in some sort of more cinematic shots and stuff, and luckily we did get that opportunity. Um, and it was really interesting filming in Cardiff, because I don't think people would necessarily assume that was the most cinematic of locations, <laughs> but... We did find some really amazing places, and um, I hope it kind of casts it in a, in a sort of different light in a way. We've made it look very noirish, and, you know, um, which, I mean, it really appealed to me, the idea of filming in Cardiff, because I do think of it as a nighttime city with lots of lights and stuff, which was the sort of feeling that I wanted for the film. It's also got a very dreamlike quality. I mean, some people seem to have found very, uh, read it too literally. I found it more very much of a dream movie. Even in, in, yeah. in, in mind, it reminded me of Vertigo, believe it or not. Oh, well, no, I think that's really perceptive. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's much... There's psychological realism in the sense, sense that it's someone spiralling into a sort of existential crisis, but, you know, in terms of, like, pregnant women murdering people, I don't think there's really that much precedent for that. It's, you know, it is kind of a bit of a fantasy, wish-fulfillment sort of film where it's you're descending into someone's mind, really. And, you know, I really wanted to show that, you know, I kind of wanted to reflect pregnancy and the kind of what it does, you know, what the hormones do to your mind and that they do sort of shift your perceptions. And um, and that was what I was trying to show in the film, really, that, you know, it's someone who is in a bit of a walking nightmare, really, um, with the odd glimpses of sort of hope or melancholy or fury and, and um, the cocktail of emotions that sort of comes about with pregnancy. Yeah, fury being a key word there. I think it even alludes to furies literally as moments in the film. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. I mean, um, yeah, we had some... I, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I researched the classical idea of the furies as well, who were like the goddesses of vengeance. Um, I just got interested in this idea of, you know, sort of female uh, element of terrain you know, and, and what female anger would look like. And obviously those goddesses is quite convenient uh, place for, for those sorts of ideas. And, um, 
Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, there is a bit of anger in there. I kind of felt like I wanted to help show a, a pregnant woman who, rightly or wrongly, is, is empowered in some ways. You know, I, I, I kind of talk about her as being an anti-superheroine <laughs> in some ways. But, um, you know, she's got pregnancy as a special power. And, um, and so she's kind of using these special powers to kind of get what she wants, really. And I think we're used to seeing, uh, you know, pregnant women as represented as weak or vulnerable in some way or a bit mad because of their, or irrational or, you know, making irrational demands. And I kind of wanted to show the flip side of that, really. It, it was a very interesting tightrope, the way you managed to evolve in empathy for such a character and the quandary that goes on within her own head as she goes along was quite interesting that she's trying to justify each killing. She needs to almost find a reason as she reaches each next victim. And they start yeah. to kind of uh, fall apart towards when she meets the jogging lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted it to be that she there is a conflict within her between, you know, there's part of her that thinks she's this righteous avenger that's um, knocking off sinners in a way. You know, it's a bit like her own version of Seven that she's, you know, the baby's like... All humanity is rubbish, so we might as well get rid of them. Um, but, you know, in her own mind, she's got these quandaries, she's got these sort of sentiments that, that she feels responsible towards these people in some ways to, to be fair towards them. So it's almost like she takes them to trial or, or with each with each killing yes. and sort of has to make the decision, yeah, they should die. And I hope the sort of audience go with her on that as well. I mean, there were some times where we had to actually make the decision of like oh we need to cut this bit out because this person takes us too far and you're actually a bit like yeah kill him almost it was almost like this person is too revolting but that's you what know, i like about it it's just it plays with expectations and it, that's naturally going to really annoy some people and it's going to please others that's the way it works yeah i mean i think people will form their different opinions about the characters and i, I want them to do that you know to decide whether you know Oh, was that a bit unfair? Like, quite a lot of people say to me, did she have to kill Josh? <laughs> I'm sort of like, well, she did, because that's kind of the turning point for her of, like, realising that she's gone beyond and there's no turning back, really. Yeah, without giving it in a way, that was a, that was a wonderful scene. It was kind of... <clears throat> it wasn't unexpected, but it was still a wonderful moment. Uh, <laughs> we won't go into it. But uh, tell us a little bit about the production. I know that it was an amazing turnaround. You were heavily pregnant at the time. Uh, and obviously you were pregnant when you shot the film as well. Uh, t tell us a little bit more about that. Um, well, someone came to me and said, do you want to make a film? And um, it was a kind of no-strings-attached, what-would-you-like-to-do sort of thing. And it was a director I'd worked with before on another feature called Black Mountain Poets, but I'd just been an actress on that. And I sort of um, said no, and then I went away and thought, actually, what if I played a pregnant character? What would that look like? What story would I want to tell? And so I pitched them this idea of a pregnancy revenge movie, thinking they'd just say, that's ridiculous. There's a reason there's been no pregnant director stars of features. It's because it's impossible to do. And um, they didn't. They said, yes, let's do it. And, um, and I was like, okay, but we have to do it in the next two months. Yeah. before I have the baby and um, and they were like yeah I think that's possible and uh, we just went on from there I had the right second guess anything I just very much um, you know it's very much a first draft that we shot in some ways I think I did a few small changes but um, 
but you know, I had to kind of use all my experience of low budget filmmaking to kind of write something that I knew was achievable within the time. So I knew it had to be uh, long scenes in very few locations and maybe a very small cast. So it was kind of like a case of writing a series of vignettes, really, with um, a different actor in each one so that we could get an actor in each day. It's a kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of the, the, the ultimate act in improvisation, all encouraged by the offer of being pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure people thought, what the hell am I getting myself into by setting up to do this project? But it was just one day, so it probably didn't seem like that much of a sacrifice. But, you know, I really asked actors that I knew would bring more than the sum of their parts to, to the role, you know, that I knew had comedy and acting ability, could do drama and comedy and also would just make the characters very convincing and sort of mesmeric on screen. Um, yeah, and we totally embroidered the scenes and added to them with improv as well, so I needed to work with people who wouldn't be phased by that, who were kind of used to working in that way. You were surrounded by a wonderful cast, there's no doubt about it. Um, I'm, forgive me for forgetting your, your top act, your first victim's name, uh, Interesting connection that he's uh, also he's in high rise. Yeah, he's in notes on blindness as well. Which he... He's a wonderful actor. I don't see enough of him. I I, I love yeah. him in House of Fools. Yeah, I think he's going to get more work now. I mean, he's just done. I mean, in serious stuff because he's just done notes on blindness, um, which apparently is incredible, and he's the lead in that, and that's had a lot of accolades. So I kind of think you're going to see him more, really. He's, um, oh, he is amazing. He's um, so convincing in, in whatever role he plays. And as you were saying, it, it means an awful lot to be surrounded by such uh, strong collaborators. Uh, would you like to tell me a little bit more about that, what it really meant to the, the shoot itself? As you say, it was 11 days. That's kind of um, phenomenal. Yeah. So um, we shot the whole thing... Um, did a five-day shoot and we had a couple of days off and then we did another three-day shoot and then we had a couple of weeks off meantime while I was getting bigger <laughs> and then we kind of did three days pickup so um yeah it was very very quick and it was very like the actors just came in they knew what they, their scene was but they didn't necessarily know much about the project um and had much background on it and they just took a leap of faith by by sort of participating and then you know it really until the screenings that they I don't think they really knew what to expect from the film um, and then by the time but you know we were finishing the film racing to get to Toronto because okay. they accepted the film on the ground of seeing it without a grade without final sound well she sounds so, in fine fettle <laughs> Okay, we'll yeah, keep going too long. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so um, I, I, interestingly, I don't know. Have, do, do you know uh, a story by Cornell Woolrich called the Bl the Bride Wore Black? Um, I've heard of it actually because I think the reason I know about it is um, Kate Bush did a song based on it. Well, that's oh, that's right. I'm a Kate that's, Bush fan. <laughs> well, well, go and check out um, uh, Jean Truffaut did an adaptation of it. And I yeah. had in straight. I'm trying to up my uh, my uh, kind of uh, snooty cinema at the moment, and I saw it only a few weeks before your film, and I couldn't get over. It. And I mean this in a, a nice way. Some wonderful uh, similarities in the premise and the beginning of that, those two movies. I think you'll you'll enjoy I to watch it. Get out because in 
finished, they asked me about it, and I was hugely embarrassed that I hadn't seen it. It was <laughs> embarrassing. It was like the first question that they asked me at this incredibly, you know, European brow festival, and I was like, oh dear, Ooh. <laughs> oh dear. But no, I would love to see it. And I, there's this um, song that I love by Kate Bush, which is called The Wedding List, and I think that's based on that story. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And I saw somewhere yeah. that you were going to use a Kate Bush song in the closing credits, but it, well, what was that one called? I'm always trying to use Kate Bush songs, and it's just, you know... Yeah, like, who wouldn't? Live in hope one day <laughs> that it will work out. But, um, yeah, we we wanted to use it at the end, but it didn't work out. But, um, you know, I just find her an inspiration, really, in, in all of my work, just, like, the stories that just tell, often, often very female perspective, and... Um, yeah, just the emotion that she brings to things. And I think that was really what helped me by listening to that song was I really wanted there to be some pathos and some sadness within the film. And I think that is something that I'm quite proud of in terms of, like, the comedy horror genre that I actually managed to squeeze in some sort of pathos and, and pathos more than pathos, but, you know, some sort of um, melancholy into it as well, which I think is not particularly traditional, but... Um, you know, I think as a female director, maybe that's one of the things that I was interested in bringing, bringing to the screen, really. Yeah, well, you, you certainly took on a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> T- uh, tell me this, I want to see way back backwards and, and talk a little bit about your career up to this point. I'm, a, I'm also a big fan of Garrett Marenghi's Dark Place, and that was one of your oh, yeah. earlier <laughs> roles, and... And and you've done Mighty Boosh, and you know you you come from a, a very solid improv and kind of sort of surrealist theatre background. <laughs> yeah, so I mean yeah. it's it's not hard to to see you kind of getting into the and again Sightseers is another wonderful film that you did. You could almost in another universe this is a sequel to it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean people have asked me about that, and I I don't mind people sort of saying that. I kind of think for me personally, sequels always feel like a bit reductive. Yeah. Maybe even just for me personally, in terms of moving forwards creatively. But but if people see similarities, I have no problem with that at all. I'm like, well, all of my work is following on from from itself. You know, I'm I'm sort of just developing and learning all the time and get, evolving into a sort of I hope a better filmmaker. So well, well, you know, I think the similarities linked, of course. The similarities are they're both very dark and absurd in that lovely way. But uh, which brings me to you. Obviously, working with Ben Wheatley uh, was uh, interesting in itself, and he had to learn your dynamic as much as you kind of went with his. Let's go like ninety dynamic. Did that have an effect on the way you approached Prevenge by any chance? I mean, um, I think watching Ben and the sort of momentum he's kept in his career has been really inspiring. Actually, um, I think I learned a few tricks from him in terms of like just pushing forward with the work and not second guessing yeah. or not allowing doubts to creep into your mind. And I mean, in terms of like the way he works very fast and stuff, I that's my preferred way of working as well. I've made yeah. lots of short films which I've shot in one day and stuff. And for me, it's more about making sure that idea gets out there and, and the spark that interested you in the first place. And sometimes there's no amount of finessing and sort of... Um, adapting that really helps that is that you can actually kill the spark that was that first inspired you so for me it's always like I'd rather be working really quickly and, and getting I think you know it, the results are it's sort of rough around the edges but there's a real energy on screen and there's yes. a real tension and the actors are coming on set going I have no idea what's going on we're just throwing ourselves into this and um, 
I, you know, to me, that's how you get, you know, what else am I offering? I'm trying to compete in a way with, like, multi-million dollar blockbusters that people might choose to see instead of this film. And I'm sort of like, well, I can't give you explosions and I can't give you loads of CGI and you know, multi-million dollar effects. But what I ha can do is put, like, energy and vibrancy onto the screen and a kind of sense of uh, rawness that you maybe are not, you don't get to see all the time. Um, and I think that's that's the joy of sort of low-budget filmmaking, really. Yeah, does, does that have the Hollywood hangover in a lot of people's heads about being prepared and sometimes you should be just prepared to, to find out what's going to happen on the day? Not, not meaning that you don't do any work, but as you say... I, that's exactly the way it is. I mean, I kind of think you're, the script is the plan B to me and it's like if you find something better, you shoot that. And it's just that open-mindedness to the flexibility. It's very sort of 70s way of filmmaking, really, but... A lot of the stuff that I'm proudest of in the film is stuff that wasn't planned. It's, you know, things visually that popped up and I was like, oh my God, can we get that? And, um, and you know, just structuring that into your schedule of kind of going, we'll get some stuff here. We don't know what it is, but we trust that it will be cool. And um, and there was definitely that in the schedule was, was sort of built in, you know, um, like, for example, the Halloween walk. We just knew that we, <laughs> that's what we call it, it's Halloween walk, but... <laughs> walking through the streets of Cardiff not really knowing what we were going to get and just trusting that we were going to get something amazing and um, that's some of my favourite stuff because you kind of feel more like you're channeling something else you know it's, it's nothing the, the fact that it's good is nothing to do with you it's just that you've managed to capture something that was really happening that, that is exciting and you, you would have kicked yourself if you hadn't yeah if... oh totally I mean the thing is we couldn't have afforded it we couldn't have afforded to create that scene without just using <laughs> general public you know it's the amount of extras and costumes and stuff we just didn't have the time or the money so the, the fact that we just sort of chased people around and asked them to sign things was the only way we could pull it off really <laughs> I don't think they would have remembered <laughs> no possibly not um, yeah. not looking like the state some of them <laughs> but to, yeah, to, sorry, yeah, to, to go back again tell me more about your early days of improv with um, uh, was it what was it Heat City forgive me for not remembering I was I was with, with your your original improv work. Can you tell me more about that and how it kind of led you into television and 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 going for this darker kind of material that you do seem to thrive in? Um, I mean, I've never really done any sort of formal. I've never been part of a troupe, improvisation troupe, or anything like that. So I don't have any formal experience of that. I think it's more that um, I worked quite a lot in devised theatre right at the beginning of my career, and I was working with people like Paul King, who now directs directing Paddington and Paddington 2. And um, I think we were really interested in groups like Theatre de Complicité and Robert Lepage, who did very sort of visual theatre pieces. And I'd be building characters um, for these shows that we were doing. And um, after a while, sort of realised, oh, well, what we're doing is improvisation, but it's actually a form of writing as well and, and trusting improvisation as a, as a writing tool, really. So I, I would say what I do is very character comedy. It's not like improvisation sports, which is like a quite American thing. Yes. Where it's like who's lands it anyway? I don't really go for. I don't. I'm not really any good at that. Um, but what I do like to do is um, build characters with other actors by by you know working through scenes. And I think you get to truth in that way. I think it's you sort of pass a point where you're not trying to show off. You're just actually channeling like um, you get to a more relaxed state where you're um, 
I don't know, like you're, you're having more normal conversations, but that are very revelatory about the characters. And um, I just find sometimes film scripts is very artificial and, and nothing to do with the characters or, or with real life. And I'm sort of more interested in sort of drawing out what um, sort of psychological truths in, in stuff. So, um, yeah, for me, I, uh, yeah, I just enjoy it as well. It's just, you know, you come up with... When, when I'm working in comedy and it's very, very scripted, you sometimes think, oh, you, you add in a joke and and that's where the, the laugh is. And, you know, if, for me, I'm like, why would I cop, turn down that gold dust, you know, for my performers if someone added in something that was hilarious and everyone was falling around? <laughs> I'm like, now I've got more than my money's worth, you know, this is brilliant. Whereas, you know, some people prefer to keep it very, very tightly scripted and the jokes are the jokes and there's nothing to be added or... You know, sometimes I think you don't know what's funny until you're in the situation, basically, and you're in the costume and you're in the room and you're, you know... Yeah. That's, that's when it's suddenly there's this huge clarity about what's going on in this scene. And, yes, yes. Um, and I think it's a shame to not use that. I, I agree with what you said there as well, that it's losing your ego. A lot of actors take a long time to learn that. Some never learn it. And from doing a little bit of improv myself, I, I know, I do have an, an idea what you're talking about. Is that strange moment where the group are just doing something and you don't have to know everything that's just happened but you know when it works mm. it is that thing of sort of just trying to channel the moment and and uh, listen to each other as well I think that's a really important yeah. thing Joe Hartley was saying that's what Shane Meadows always says he's like you just listen to each other and respond you know you're not trying to show off by carving something out you're actually just reacting that's the most important thing is to react in a genuine way um and, you know, that's what my actors gave to me, not just as a director, but as a performer. You know, they came in and surprised me with the, what they were doing, whether it was the way they were delivering the lines in the script or by adding in a curveball that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> you know, um, that helped me as well to, to not be sort of going, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what collaboration's you know. about, isn't it? It's, it's about the other person and creating the thing, not... The creating the, the your own performance alone. Yeah, exactly. You're you're serving what the scene is and um, and the meaning. And you know that's why I kind of like people to not know too much about what they're doing. Like Woody Allen says that as well. Like you know, actors sometimes will really want to talk for a long time about their characters and their scenes. And I really try and resist that because it's yeah. like I want you to let go. I don't want you to feel like you're in control because people in real life are not in control. We don't know what the script is in real life. So feeling nervous or sort of a little bit vulnerable, I think, is really interesting to watch and um, always makes a performance seem more interesting to me anyway. It's, yeah, it does, a, it does, it does a, a, a kind of energy that it can't be faked, though, no matter what the skills are and the diction and the, the, the placing and, the, and the, the mooding, as it were. But I suppose yeah. the sense of what actors are these days it seems to be evolving all the time, depending on what you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we're reaching this point now where um, well, we're pa we've gone past the point of the star, haven't we? It's like, who's the new Tom Cruise? They're just Because yeah. studios don't let actors have that power anymore. And also, we're all going to be CGI generated within about 10, 10 years anyway. <laughs> just download our facial expressions. I can't wait for all those new Laurel and Hardy movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I'm kind of like... That's why I'm kind of interested in people who are 
these charismatic performers that are quite peculiar, actually, and unusual. I don't really like casting people that are unexpected and, and that you feel like there's an intangible charisma to this person. I don't really know what it is, but um, it's always watchable. And so to say that to young filmmakers as well, like, you know, don't sort of go, oh, this has to be a six-foot-tall redhead because I put it in the script. <laughs> it's like, get the actor that you know that is really charismatic and funny and entertaining and you just would watch them, like, just sitting, looking out the window is watchable. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of the magic of how to make a good scene and a good film, I think, is just, like, make sure the actors are fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you it's know, a, you're half the way there. Yeah. I said sometimes the skill is actually having the nerve to find out what something is, not and try and make it what it is. And, and f just find the elements along the way and be surprised and know when something is really kind of jumps out at you. Well, I, this is what I really enjoyed about this film is I had these very long scenes that were between strangers. So it was a kind of sense of like, they're quite slow paced, but then the audience knows what's coming. But it, it's a sense of being able to have this luxury to build up this weird, awkward tension. There's it, nothing expected about it, you know, like the, I'm not, I wasn't sort of, using other scenes from films to kind of build what I was doing. I was kind of going, what would it really be like this, if this was really happening? A lot of that was really interesting because you kind of underestimate people's attention spans sometimes. And yeah. you know, oh, who's going to find this interesting? But actually, as long as it feels fresh and real, people do want to watch it. They're sort of like, what's going on here? And they sort of sit up and take notice because they're like, what the hell is happening? Like, so I think all of that has been quite useful. How much did you, when you were in, I mean, how did you find the process of, I mean, you're practically in every scene, so directing yourself, you weren't running quickly behind the camera and then quickly in front of the camera to, to do this, obviously, and you had people that you trusted that were marking it, but what was it like for you uh, to be doing all this, and as we know, pregnant on top of all that as well? <laughs> I kind of forgot that I was pregnant, like, sometimes you'd be offering me a seat, and I'd be like, no, I'm fine, why are you putting a seat on me, and then I'm like... Oh, yeah, I'm pregnant, yeah. <laughs> I, I had loads of energy. I, was I mean, it's always tiring doing a long shoot, but I didn't feel any more tired than anyone else, I think. Mm. I was just quite happy to be making film. And to me, like, I, I've done a lot of low-budget things where you're wearing lots of different hats, where you're maybe, you know, you have done your own costumes or built a prop or, you know, you're doing lots of different things. So to me, like, directing and acting in something doesn't feel that demanding. It yeah. feels kind of okay. I've had so much experience on set and I feel like yeah I know how this works I know the, the workplace I know the hierarchies of all the different jobs and I, I understand it I feel very comfortable on set so I'm not there going oh shit how am I going to pull this up I'm just there <laughs> going this is normal this is back to work you know and and really um, I don't really watch rushes and stuff I just um, I just kind of trust my DOP and I, I trust what the atmosphere in the room is if I feel like there was an amazing vibe for a particular take or whatever and, and, and the DOP is like yes technically I grabbed everything I'm like thumbs up let's move on then um, you know I don't sort of dwell around going I think we should shoot this in 20 different angles I'm sort of a bit like I'd rather do another take than watch the rushes because watching a playback takes the same amount as filming it again in a different way so why don't we just film it again that's, you know, that's why I'd rather just another the material, the... just like gather, gather, gather material. And then in the edit is where you do all the really hard work and the hard graft and making all your choices and stuff. 
But it's a, it's a big deal to trust your DOP so much that, again, I, I think all the good DOPs should do at least one acting uh, course and have a, have a good sense of story. I mean, you must have felt that in some way from the DOP. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have my very um, particular... You know, I, I don't believe in getting too much coverage. I kind of go, um, we'll start in this way, and then we might need these shots, but we might not. And if I feel like we've got enough coverage, then I'll stop. So I'm kind of quite confident in, in saying to the DOP, I don't, I'm happy with that angle to cover this whole scene, you know, and, and that's, so you're, you're approaching it with an economy anyway. And then when you know, I mean, I knew Ryan was, he's very, uh, he's very sensitive to performance. I sort of trust him when he's going to swing the camera around because mm. someone's, they maybe haven't even said something, they've just got an expression on their face that the audience need to see, and I trust him to sort of respond in that emotionally um, intelligent, sort of literate way, but he also knows how to make something look beautiful on a very short notice, so, you know, right from the start I'd said to him, we're not going to do any lighting, it's all going to be practical lighting, it's like, you know, you can have one light, and that's just to make sure people aren't in shadow, but basically I want all the lighting to be hidden so we can roam around and film 360 without stopping and starting, because lighting's often the thing that takes up a lot of your time when you're setting. So I just didn't want any of that. We we were just going to get rid of that. That's how Ben Wheatley works as well. Yeah, I I remember I was at a a talk he gave, and it was one of the most interesting things he said about Down Terrace was the first thing he said to the cameraman was, don't you be upsetting me with lights. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I do think it's that thing of like, I mean, I really like 70s filmmakers as well, and I'm kind of like, if I want it to be blue, I want there to be a blue lamp in the room. I want it to all be practical, you know. Any choices that I want, that I make, I want people to feel like this looks like this, not because someone pressed a button in the grading suite, Mm. but because it's really like this. And I think that's another thing about sort of embracing realism and stuff. And a lot of the locations we chose for the the quality of the light and the, you know, and what it brought in terms of colour already. So I was sort of like saying, this murder is orange. I want this flat to be orange. And then we'd find an orange flat. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. Yeah, I, I, I thought... I thought really, really lucky. I, you, yeah, I thought the most the most beautifully... Uh, if you, uh, the most beautiful kind of uh, murder in terms of the... Uh, from a cinematography point of view was the uh, the insurance lady. In, in, in the office, I, I liked all the, all the way you kind of went to a very alien landscape. For that you might as well have been in a spaceship. Uh, that I m- mean, we we really that was sort of a, another really lucky thing where I was like, I want this murder to be blue, like icy blue, and I wanted to film it in, from up underneath of a glass table, and then the glass table that in this place where they let us film for free was icy blue, and I was like, oh my god, this could not be perfect. So a lot of that was just coincidence, you know, and good luck. And But it does show you what you can pull off if you are willing to think laterally about things. Yeah. And to me, it's the joy of it. I actually really, really enjoy working in that way. It's like, oh my god, we found this thing, and you do feel this, you know, like I said to the DOP, who's based in Cardiff, I, I want to film in an underpass, and I want it to be really bright colours, like the more Kubricky it could be, the better. He was like, I know just the place, and he showed me his underpass, and I was like, Oh my god, this is what I had in my head. I can't believe it. You know, it's like uncanny almost. Um, so there's a lot of like very fortuitous 
coincidence yeah. like that. In some ways, there's a truth. I don't think there's a such thing as a bad location. It's just badly mm. looked at and badly thought about is what happens with locations. Yeah, or under, underestimated. You, you kind of want that thing. Like some, someone really, the most flattered I was about the sort of cinematography, or I thought it was a testament to, to Ryan's work, was a guy from Cardiff who was interviewing me says, I'd never seen Cardiff shown in that light before. Maybe <laughs> think differently about the city. And I was like, well, that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? It's like, yeah, as you say, it's an alien landscape, trying to see it as with completely fresh eyes and not kind of going, oh, it's just Cardiff, you know. It, yeah. It's never been shown in a film before, who cares? It's going, no, this is cinematic. And I met I met Mike Hodges as well, and he I remember him talking about Carter and his reasons for filming it on the docks and he was like oh the accents are all completely wrong you know it doesn't it doesn't make sense that it's happening there but I knew visually it was gonna make it into this completely new exciting thing that hadn't really been done before and I think that's really true that's one of the, the best northern landscape movies of the 70s mm, yeah, uh, yeah that, absolutely that... Listen, I'm, I don't want to keep you on too long. I, I, I take, I'm t- I don't want to eat into your time. Um, th- thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. I think oh, our, our, I'm glad. Our yeah, listeners no, are going to love it. Yeah. So, sorry we can't talk about Gart Marenghi's Dark Place anymore. Oh, what, what, what's it, <laughs> what is Gart up to <laughs> these days, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Alex, good luck with the movie uh, um, and good luck with the next movie as well. I look forward to that. Uh, yeah, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. Yeah, well, see you. Yeah. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.